Well, this morning we come to Mark chapter 13. And as last week, we saw the signs of things to come. And I told you it was going to be a two-part message. We got through the first four verses last week, and then we're going to continue this morning as we work our way through verse 13. In theology, there's a, a belief that's called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism. And those that are postmillennial, they believe that Christ is going to return after the millennium, hence postmillennialism. However, they don't see the millennium as being a, a thousand year reign, a literal thousand year reign of Christ like we do. We understand that when we read Revelation 20 and it says a thousand years, we interpret that literally as a thousand years. It's what it says and therefore that's what it means. Postmillennialists, they interpret a thousand years in Revelation 20 as just a long period of time. What they believe is that Christ is going to return after the world has become Christianized. They believe the world is going to be Christianized and that Christians on earth will have established the kingdom here on earth and therefore it's going to be prepared by the Christians so that Christ can then come in and sit on his throne in his kingdom. They think that there's going to be a, a golden age of peace and prosperity. And then after that happens, Jesus will return his second time, he's going to then re resurrect and judge all of humanity, both the wicked and the righteous, and then he's going to reign in his kingdom. A golden age of peace and prosperity. That's what they believe. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's not what God's Word tells us. In fact, in our passage here this morning, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't say that things are going to get better. In fact, he says things are going to get a lot worse. They're going to get a lot worse. So let's pick up in Mark 13, and let me just read our passage for us this morning to set the context for us. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. 
The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now last week we saw the disciples as the disciples were amazed at the beauty of the temple. The temple was a glorious building, marvelous building as they looked around at its beauty. Jesus said in verse 2, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be torn down. So we can see that even at this point, Jesus is not saying that things are going to get better, right? You guys see that temple there? It's coming down. The temple is going to be destroyed. And because we believe in a, a literal interpretation of Scripture, that when Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed... We know he means the temple's going to be destroyed. Pretty straightforward. And we look back at history and we see the history of Jerusalem, that there was a literal fulfillment of this in 70 AD when the Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. That's why there's no temple there today. If you were to go to Jerusalem, the temple is not there. It's a literal fulfillment. And then last week we saw this double question that the disciples asked, a two-part question. First, when will the, the temple be destroyed? And then second, what are the signs of the end of the age when Christ comes to set up his kingdom? What are the signs? And because we saw the literalness of Jesus telling them that the temple is going to be destroyed and we saw a literal fulfillment of that destruction. As we continue on here in Mark chapter 13, we must take the signs that Jesus is about to give his disciples as literal signs, right? They're literal signs that are going to be accomplished. This is going to happen in the future, in the future from when Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. As we look at these future signs, we're going to see here in verses 5 through 13 that Jesus is going to give them signs about the present history of the church age. These are present signs of the present history of the church age. Then as we work our way into verses 14 through 23, we're going to see a period known as the tribulation, a seven-year period known as the tribulation. Then in verses 24 through 37, we're going to see the second coming of Christ. So that's how we break up Mark chapter 13. So let's look at the signs that Jesus gives to us now as to what is going to take place before he returns. We understand and we know that the next event that is going to take place for us as a church is the what? The rapture. The rapture of the church. That's the next thing that's going to take place. But Jesus says there are some things that are going to happen before that time comes, before we are raptured. What are these things that are going to happen? Well, Jesus gives us six signs here. 
Six signs that are given that we're going to look at this morning. The first one we'll call the deception of false messiahs. The deception of false messiahs. Look at verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. Now notice Jesus gives, first of all, a warning here. Jesus gives a warning. And this warning here is a command. It's an an imperative in the Greek. See to it. It's the first of two major warnings that Jesus gives in this passage in verses 5 through 13. The second one found in verse 9. If you look down at verse 9, he says, Be on your guard. Warnings. Be on your guard. See to it in in verse 5. And be on your guard in verse 9 are the exact same words in the Greek text. It's the exact same words. And these are the exact same words that are also used, the exact same word that is used in chapter 12 and verse 38. Look at what it says there. In chapter 12 and verse 38, in his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes. That word beware there. It's the same word that's used as see to it and be on your guard. It's the same Greek word that is used there. That word beware or see to it and be on your guard in verses 5 and 9, they mean to look out or to observe or to discern. Jesus is saying here, beware, see to it, and have discernment. You need to be watchful. It's a warning here. It's a warning to these guys, and it's a warning to us as well. Have discernment. What's the warning here? Don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone mislead you. That's the warning. The word mislead in the Greek there is the word planao, and it means to mislead or to deceive. What Jesus is saying here is, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone come in and deceive you. Because many will come and they will try to deceive you. But don't be deceived. Don't listen to them. How are they going to deceive people? Notice what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Meaning they will come as if they have the same power and authority that Christ does, and they're going to claim to be the Messiah as they seek to usurp the true Messiah and his office. What Jesus says here is they will literally claim to be I am. Jesus uses the the divine name of God here, ego eimi in the Greek. Notice it. In in NASB, it says he in italics. Those words are in italics like that. It means that the translators have added that word in there to help you understand the context and what's going on. But it's not there in the original text. So they will claim, I am. They will claim to be God in the flesh just as Jesus was God in the flesh. And these false messiahs will claim to be the true messiah. 
Now, we ask the question then, has this happened? Has this happened before? You may turn on the TV, the Christian TV, and you may see that there are false teachers on there or turn on the radio station and you hear that there are false teachers or read their books or whatever. Don't read their books. But you may see that they are out there and you might go, but they're not claiming to be the Messiah. They're just teaching false things about God, about his word. So has this ever happened before? Someone has come and claimed to be the Messiah? Well, not long after Jesus ascended to heaven, false messiahs arrived. The earliest recorded one we have is in 132 AD by a man named Simon Bar Kokhba. And he led a revolt against the Roman Empire, and he even considered or convinced some rabbi scholars that he was the messiah. He convinced them of it. Another man by the name of Dosithius, the Samaritan, lived around the same time. And he claimed that he was the Messiah that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18.15, which says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This man, Dosithius, rose up and he said, I'm the one that Moses was talking about. I am the Messiah. I'm the prophet that Moses was talking about. And many others have come since that time, since these men, and they have come and tried to lead the Jewish people astray, claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, Dr. Charles Feinberg said in 1953, up to our day, there is a record of some 40, uh, 64 false messiahs who have tried to lead Israel astray. 64, up to his time, that they have recorded of false messiahs who have come to try and lead Israel astray. What happens when these false messiahs make these false claims? What does Jesus say in verse 6? Notice what he says there. They will mislead many. They will mislead them. Again, mislead meaning deceive. They will deceive not just a few people, but they will deceive many people. Many are going to be deceived by them. These false messiahs know that the people of Israel have been waiting for their Messiah. And so these imposters come claiming to be the Messiah and then they lead the masses astray. And again, we might think, how do they do that? How do they do something like that? Well, think about all the false teachers in our day. How many people are led astray by false teachers in our day? How do they, these false teachers come in and lead these people astray? What do they offer them? They offer them hope. They offer them hope. But it's really a false hope that they offer. Usually of some kind of financial blessing. And what have the masses done? They followed after them. They go astray. And they follow after false teachers. And it's the same tactic that these false messiahs use as well. They offer false hope. 
and the masses get attached to them and they are deceived and they're led astray. And so Jesus tells these disciples, don't be deceived by these false messiahs. They're coming, but don't be deceived by them. Don't be led astray. Jesus says that's a sign of the end times. That's a sign that false messiahs will arise to deceive many people. Jesus gives a second sign, though. A second sign that we'll call the devastation of the nations. The devastation of the nations. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, wars are not new to us. Wars are nothing new. We've all been alive during a time of war. Since 2001, until just recently, there was war in Afghanistan. You can open a history book and study about all of the wars that have taken place over the last 2,000 years. Lots of wars. Millions of lives have been lost because of war. But Jesus said, what's going to happen? There's going to be wars. There will be wars and there will be rumors of wars. Now, why do wars take place? Why will there be wars? Listen to what James says in James 4.1. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Why are there wars? Well, wars are a result of the depravity of man. The depravity of man. It is literally the depravity of man on display when you see war break out. It is someone who is lusting and wanting. They have their own desires and they want it and so they war. Total depravity on display. But what does Jesus tell his disciples in verse 7 when they see these wars happen and when they hear of these Rumors of wars. What does he say? He says, do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. Why? Because wars are just the result of fallen man. Fallen man is going to fight with one another. That's what's going to happen. So don't be afraid when you hear of these wars and these rumors of wars. Notice Jesus says, those things must take place. It must happen. But he says, that is not yet the end. You know, it's interesting how many people, or how people react when war hits. After 9-11, churches were packed with people. People fled to church when we were attacked. There was great fear among people of our country and people were looking for hope. Sadly, many churches didn't offer them hope. 
Many churches acted out in fear just like the rest of the world. People came into these churches and they were looking for hope and they looked around and they saw that these people were just like them. Fearful. But what does Jesus say? Do not fear. Don't be frightened. These things are going to take place. It's going to happen. People should have run to the church and looked and noticed that the church was different. They should have come into the church doors and they should have looked around and seen, these people, they're not like me. Why don't these people have fear like I have? They should have noticed that it was a a place of complete peace and rest. Then when they ask why the church is acting like this, we should respond with, because Jesus tells us not to fear. You want to know why we act this way? Because we're just obeying our Savior, who has told us things are going to get bad. But you know what? He said, don't fear. So we don't fear. We just trust him. That's how we respond. The same thing is true with COVID now. We should be the most peaceful place on earth knowing that sin brings disaster and destruction. We understand when a pandemic breaks out, it's a result of the fall. But you know what Jesus says when all of this comes? Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Trust me. This is a result of the fall. But trust me. That's how we're to respond. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ who tells us, commands us, do not fear. In fact, Jesus says wars are going to happen. Because of the fallenness of man, wars are going to happen, but he says that's not the end. In fact, he continues on in verse 8 to describe what it will look like. He says, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then notice what else Jesus says is going to happen in verse 8 there. He says, there will be earthquakes in various places. You're going to see earthquakes take place. Growing up in California, earthquakes were just a normal thing. Just another day in the sunshine state. Earthquakes. Be going along throughout your day and all of a sudden the ground starts to shake. And you just go, well, another earthquake. I remember back in 1994, there was a major earthquake in California called the Northridge Earthquake. The epicenter was about 40 miles from where we lived. This earthquake was a 6.4 magnitude. It collapsed bridges and crumbled homes. There were 72 deaths, and the estimated damage that it cost was between 25 and $50 billion of damage of one earthquake. Great destruction and devastation caused by an earthquake. 
But what did Jesus say is going to happen? It's going to be earthquakes. You're going to see earthquakes. Jesus also says there's going to be famine. You're going to see famine. And he says, when you see all of this taking place, notice at the end of verse 8, these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses this, this illustration, this image here. This is just the beginning of birth pangs. It's a very vivid picture that Jesus gives to his disciples. When a woman gives birth, there are the early contractions that happen. But those contractions, they get worse and worse until the baby's delivered. Jesus says, it's going to happen. Things are going to get worse and worse before I return, before I come back. They're just the beginning of birth pangs. So Jesus says, when you see all of this happen, just know that it's just the beginning. And have we seen this happen? Yes, we have. We've seen this happen for the last 2,000 years. This has been happening, and it's getting worse and worse. Wars, earthquakes, and famines, they've been getting worse and worse. But Jesus says, these are just signs of the beginning. But there are more signs to know about. Jesus now shifts away from world catastrophes that are going to take place, and he gets more personal with these guys, with these disciples who were sitting there asking him about the signs of the end times. These signs become more personal for these guys. And Jesus gives them a third sign. Sign number three we will call the distress because of Christ. The distress because of Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, be on your guard. Beware. Look out. Watch out. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now notice here, another warning in this passage. Be on your guard. Literally in the Greek, is watch out for yourself. You must watch out. Why would Jesus say this here? Because it's personal now. Wars and earthquakes and famines, those are all things that are happening throughout the world. But here, these signs are going to hit home for you. It's getting personal. And tied to this warning is that of persecution. Jesus is saying to these guys, persecution is coming. You've been with me for three years, and what has Jesus done for the last three years for these guys? Saved them from everything, right? Storm, they're out in the boat getting tossed around, and what does Jesus do? Oh, you have little faith. Guys, calm down. I'm here, right? Jesus comes walking out on the water. Guys, don't fear. I'm here for you. Oh, the people are hungry. Don't worry. We'll feed them. How much food you got? Five loaves and two fish, perfect, plenty. Watch this. And he feeds the people. He's taken care of them for three years. They've been under his hand for three years. But he says, guys, persecution is coming. Persecution is coming. 
What kind of persecution? Notice what he says there. They will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. Now, who are these courts that he's talking about here? One commentator says these courts, courts in this context, refer to local judicial bodies attached to the Jewish synagogue. This group would be responsible for meting out justice and discipline within the Jewish community. The Jews will come after you, disciples, and they're going to beat you. It's going to happen. They will deliver you over and they will flog you. Notice, I would underline, highlight, circle, will there. Two times he says that. They will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. Persecution is coming. Did this happen? Listen to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Did persecution come? It did. Jesus said it was going to happen, and it happened. Paul received 39 lashes from the Jews. 40 lashes were the maximum that one could receive, according to Deuteronomy 25. And so they would whip them 39 times just to make sure that they didn't go over 40 and break the law. Paul also says that he was in danger. Notice or listen to this, from his own countrymen. In danger from his own countrymen. Who are his own countrymen? The Jews. He's in danger from the Jews. The Jews wanted him dead for preaching Christ. Jesus says, you're going to stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Your arrest and your beatings that are going to take place, they will be a testimony to them of the power of the gospel. You're going to stand there, as Paul did many times, and proclaim to governors and kings that you are a disciple of Christ. You're going to be a witness of mine. You're going to be a testimony to the power of the gospel in your own life. As they hand you over, to the courts. Think about James Coates recently up in Canada. Very same thing happened, although he didn't receive 39 lashes, praise the Lord. But he was imprisoned. And he had to stand before the kings and the governors. And they told him, you need to shut your church down. And he said, I will not. Because Christ commands us to meet and to worship him. And he stood for Christ. And he was a witness and a testimony to all of those kings and those governors who were there before him. He was giving testimony of Christ. Jesus says you're going to be beaten and you're going to be persecuted. But why is that going to happen? It's not because of who you are but it's because 
of who I am. Jesus is telling them, it's not because of who you guys are. They don't hate you, they hate me. That's who they ultimately hate. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Then look at what he says in verse 11. In verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 9, Jesus says, they will deliver you. And now in verse 11, they will arrest you. When they arrest you, meaning it's going to happen. What is Jesus saying here? Persecution is promised. You will be persecuted. But here's the thing. Persecution is just a sign of the end. It's a sign of the end times. It's a sign that the end is coming. But you don't need to worry about these times. I love this. I love what Jesus says here. Guys, don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit's going to give you words to speak in that moment. Don't be worried about it. I think of John Huss, who was burned at the stake on July 6, 1450, for preaching against the Roman Catholic Church. And when asked to recount his views, he said this, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. You are falsely accusing me. It's not that he wasn't preaching against the Roman Catholic Church. He was. Oh yeah, he was preaching the truth. But he says, I've never thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. And he says, today I will gladly die. If it means I die for preaching the gospel, today I will gladly die. And then, I love this. While he was burned at the stake, as they set him on fire, he began to sing out, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. And he sang that while he was burning to death at the stake. Church, if you haven't experienced persecution yet, realize and recognize it's coming. Persecution is coming. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to be persecuted for the name of Christ. Don't be persecuted for your own cause. Be persecuted for the name of Christ as we stand boldly for Christ and his truth. This persecution that's, that's coming is not just being called a terrible name at work. Real persecution is coming. We have pastors who are sitting in jail right now for preaching the gospel. Church, persecution is coming. We have to be ready. But it's just a sign of the end times. It's a sign that the end is coming. That Christ is going to come and he's going to redeem it all and he's going to put back everything the way that it's supposed to be and we will rule and reign with him. 
just a sign. But it's coming. Fourth sign he gives. Sign number four we'll call the declaration of the gospel. The declaration of the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. It's almost as if Jesus gives us a little footnote here between verses 9 and 11. Notice, it's right there in between these two. They will hand you over. You will be arrested. Right in between this, Jesus says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And it seems like Jesus just gives us a footnote here. But it flows right from verse 9, and it fits right in here with the sign of persecution. How? Because persecution always leads to the spread of what? The gospel. Persecution always leads to the spread of the gospel. Think about the disciples themselves. How they were persecuted for the gospel. But both in the, in the midst of the persecution that they were going through, and even when they fled persecution, just gave them more opportunities to go and preach the gospel somewhere else, right? When persecution comes, church, listen, the spread of the gospel also comes. They go hand in hand. Think about the testimony that is given when people die for Christ. When people stand for Christ. When people are burned at the stake for Christ. Think about the testimony. What a witness to other people. Jesus gives them a promise here. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Before the end of the world, all nations will have the gospel preached to them. The gospel will go forth, and it did go forth from those 12 guys. And it spread throughout the world. And it's reached us here in Minnesota. Persecution came, but what came with it? The spread of the gospel. And we need to be thankful for those men who endured the persecution that they endured. Because as they endured persecution, they were also spreading the gospel. And we've heard the gospel. And we're here this morning because of the gospel. Jesus says the gospel must be preached to all nations. And it's going to happen before the end of the world. During the tribulation, there are going to be 144,000 preaching the gospel and in Revelation 14.6, there's an angel who has an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And the angel will come and proclaim the gospel to the entire world. Jesus promised it's going to happen. And it's happened. The gospel has gone forth to the world and it's going to continue to go forth into the world because here's the thing, church, nothing can stop the gospel. This is the most powerful thing on earth right here. Nothing can stop it. Death can't stop it. Persecution can't stop it. Kings cannot stop it. Pandemics can't stop it. The gospel must go forth and it will be preached to the entire world. 
The sad thing is there are many people who reject the gospel. As persecution comes and the gospel spreads, many people reject this good news. But here's the amazing thing in all of this. Listen, church, do you realize that we are a part of this fulfillment? You realize that? Jesus said the gospel must be preached to the entire world. Who preaches the gospel? We do. That's our job as Christians to go and preach the gospel. Who fulfills this? We do as the church. As we obey Christ, we go out and proclaim the gospel to the lost. And Jesus uses us The Holy Spirit uses us to go out into the world and to preach the gospel because Jesus said it's going to happen. Oh, and by the way, it's a sign that the end is coming. The gospel will be preached. There's a fifth sign. Death by family members. Death by family members. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his children and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Now in the Roman Empire, if anyone considered another lord or someone else to be lord other than Caesar, they would be considered a traitor and they'd be worthy of death. Death sentence. If you declared anyone else other than Caesar as lord. Brother would turn in brother. Father would turn in his child. Children would rise up against parents and have them put to death. And this still happens today. Listen to the story of one woman who came to faith in Christ in a Muslim family. Here's what she said. My mother found out first And with blood-curdling screams, she said, Infidel! 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 She slapped me and sent me to my room. When my father got home, I was again slapped and also spit on. He shouted, You are no longer my daughter. Go to your room. That is where I stayed for three years. And for three years, this woman sat in this room. She was treated as an infidel. She was treated with hatred and disgust by her own family because she came home and said, I'm a Christian. That woman, praise the Lord that she's still alive because in the Muslim faith, Their belief is that she should be killed for it. She escaped by marrying a man whom her parents thought was a Muslim man, but he was actually a Christian. And the two of them are believers with children. The Lord saved them. But you see parents turning against their children or believing in Christ. It's not a shock, though. Because Jesus said it's going to happen. Right? That's what he said. It's a sign of the end times. 
Listen to what the website My Jewish Learning says about Jews for Jesus. It says this, Members of this movement of Jews for Jesus are not accepted as Jewish by the broader Jewish community. Even though, even though some adherents may have been born Jewish and their ritual life includes Jewish practices. Jews for Jesus in the Jewish community, they say, nope, you're no longer Jewish. You are out of here. You're out of our community. They're shunned by their own Jewish community, which includes parents and siblings. They turn against one another. But Jesus said this is going to happen, right? Family members will turn on one another. And some of you have experienced that. I know. I've heard testimonies. You've experienced that. Realize that Jesus said it's going to happen. That we will be persecuted. Even by our own family. For the name of Christ. But this is just a sign that we're living in the last days. Jesus finally gives a sixth sign. Sign number six, what we'll call despised by all. Despised by all. Look at verse 13. He says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, all here does not mean that you will be hated by every single person. If you wear a cross necklace, and you're walking through the store, it's not that every single person sees that and they're going to hate you, right? It's not what Jesus is saying here. This refers to the, the general reaction of all unbelievers, of all classes, of all people. That it's not just the Jews who are going to hate you, disciples, but even the Gentiles will. They'll hate you for speaking the truth. They will hate you for telling them about Christ. They will hate you for living for Christ. But what is the promise that Jesus gives here? Notice what he says. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now Jesus is not saying here that you can lose your salvation. It's not what he's saying here. That if you endure to the end, that somehow you might lose your salvation. It's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that salvation is by works. That if you somehow endure yourself, muster up enough good works, and do whatever you can to make it to the end. What he is saying here is that true saving faith is enduring faith. True saving faith is enduring faith. Think about the seeds of the soil. The seeds that go out into the different soils. There's only one. There's only one seed in the good soil that is a believer. The other soils, they rejoice for a little while. But what happens? Persecution comes. The worries of the world comes. And what happens to that faith? It goes out. It's taken away. That joy that they once had is gone. Not that they lost their salvation. They never had it in the first place. 
Jesus is saying here, true saving faith is enduring faith. That when trials come and persecution comes, if you have true saving faith, you will endure to the end. You will be saved. Because that's what true saving faith does. True saving faith will endure trials and tribulations. It will endure hatred from governors and kings. It will endure hatred from family and friends. True saving faith does. Because true saving faith is rooted and grounded in Christ, who said these words in Mark 8.35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Enduring faith. And so church, that's the reality. The reality of what we are living in until Christ returns, until the rapture of the church. These are the end times. The end times and what Christ said is going to happen. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens but we should trust him. In closing, I want you to look at verse seven again. Look at verse seven. Look what Jesus says right in the middle of this verse. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, what is his command there? Do not be frightened. And then notice what he says in verse 11. Look at verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, what does he say there? Do not worry. Don't worry. These are such comforting words from our Savior who knew that things were going to get a lot worse, right? He's not a post-millennialist. <laughs> He's a premillennialist, And he knows things are going to get a lot worse. But I love how Jesus says in the midst of all of this, as he's saying this to his disciples, he says, and he says this to us, don't be frightened. And don't worry. Don't worry about it. I've got it all under control. Remember what Jesus said before he left. He said, all authority has been given to me on earth. All which means even those kings and those governors that are over you, <laughs> they don't have more authority than I have. They're all under me, under my hand. I have all authority. Jesus knew exactly what is happening today, right now, the suffering that people are going through, the persecution that Christians are going through. Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. Do you realize that? When the pandemic hit, he wasn't like, what? Where did this come from? <laughs> it wasn't new to him. He knew all this was going to happen. He knew everything was going to take place. And he tells us things are going to get a lot worse. But he comforts us and he says, don't fear. Don't be frightened. And don't worry. He's a comforting savior. 
who has given us this great and glorious promise. Listen to what he says. He says this in Matthew 28, 20. He says, I am with you always. That means now. That means everything that you're going through right now. You know who's with you? Jesus is right here with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May we be a church who rests and believes in that promise that Christ gives us. Such a comforting Savior who is with us always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the truth. It is so loving of you to warn us and to tell us about the things that are going to take place. What a loving thing it is so that when we see all the things that are going on around us, when we see wars and hear of rumors of wars, when we see earthquakes and famines, when we see fathers rise up against their children and children rise up against their parents. Lord, we know it's going to happen. It's nothing new because you told us it would happen. We thank you that through all of that, you are with us. That we can trust in you. Thank you for being a God who comforts us. And a God who is with us so that we don't have to fear or worry. We thank you that we can trust you in the midst of it all. Lord, I pray for those right now who are going through hardships in life, trials and tribulations. Father, I pray that they would rest in the promise that you have given that you will never leave us nor forsake us, but you're always with us. God, may we leave here from this place this morning realizing and recognizing this, these great glorious truths that where we go, you are right there with us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you are always with us. Help us to live in light of that glorious truth for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.